Napster, Kazaa, and BitTorrent are peer-to-peer file-sharing systems. In these P2P systems, nodes need to find each other. Users need to be able to search for files that exist across the system. P2P systems are decentralized, so these routing problems must be solved without a centralized service routing traffic. Without the centralized service that has all the information in one place, how can you solve these problems of node discovery and file lookup? This is the central question that Petr Maimunkov sought to answer with Kademlia. Kademlia is a peer-to-peer distributed hash table. Kademlia implements the put and get operations of an efficiently scalable hash table without using any centralized service. Each node in the system maintains its own routing table. When a user queries the system, which is the get operation, that query is serviced by the nodes coordinating with each other to intelligently route the user to their target location. When a file is stored, this is a put operation, the update to the file system can propagate through the network in a decentralized, uncoordinated way. Petter joins the show to give a brief history of P2P networks and explain why he created Kademlia. He also explains what he's working on today. We are hiring for Software Engineering Daily. The jobs include writers, researchers, and a videographer, and several other jobs. You can find them at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Some of these are part-time, some are full-time. If you're interested in working with us, then check it out, softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. And you can also post jobs on our job board if you're hiring people and want to get at our Software Engineering Daily audience. It's easy and it's free. You can just go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs, and it's quite straightforward on how to post a job. Petar Maimunkov is the co-creator of Kademlia. Petar, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me, Jeff. We're talking about Kademlia today, and Kademlia is a core component of peer-to-peer networking. That's the application that Kademlia is most commonly associated with. What is a peer-to-peer network? Okay, so the way I like to look at it is in the form of a distinction between peer-to-peer software in general and what you otherwise known as cloud software. And the distinction, I'm using this sort of familiar terms, but the distinction is sort of more general uh, and it's the following. So peer-to-peer software, regardless of what it is, is always comprised of multiple computers, so multiple computing entities, which all run the exact same algorithm at the start. Whereas, and a good metaphor to remember this is to think of a a colony of ants where all worker ants have the exact same DNA, end up, of course, uh, doing different roles, but they all are equal at the start. And contrast is with cloud software, which is also called distributed software or distributed algorithms, where, again, you have like a collection of computing devices, but every single one is running different software, has a different purpose, and importantly, there is a hierarchical control structure implied. So a good example of this, metaphorically, is a human shepherd is controlling a dog, which is controlling the herd of sheep. So you have different species with different DNA, so they have completely different specializations, 
And there is also, as part of their specialization, there is an implied hierarchical control structure with the entity on top. So in the cloud software, the human happens to be the coherent kind of business workflow that the company wants to implement in the data center. And the hierarchical relationship is that, you know, usually this is all encoded at some high-level uh, orchestrating software, which runs other pieces of software, which do like specific data processing tasks and so forth. So you have the two worlds of multiple species controlling each other in a hierarchical way versus identical species that participate kind of democratically, everybody on their own, but they follow the same algorithm, so they end up doing something useful as a whole. Right, so peer-to-peer networks are more of a flat structure, at least from the from the, start. the beginning, yes. from the start, yeah. right. And then they may develop certain structures where nodes in the network play a bigger, some nodes play a bigger role in the network than others, but foundationally, there's a flat structure. Right, and a priori, it's not known who will become an important player because it depends on how they interact with the environment. Whereas with uh, you know cloud software, it's it's set up front, who, which is the you know the the master, and and which are the workers, basically machines. Yeah. So if you in a cloud software, you might have an application where there's four different services, and then you've got a database service, and the database service services requests from all four of the other services, and so the database service is probably a priori a much bigger player in the network. Actually, actually, no. So I would put it, I actually had, it's a good thing you gave this example. What I mean here is the, the layers of control, if you look at the company holistically. So the services that you mentioned in your example, as well as the database, are all applications that are running inside a cluster. And the cluster itself is managed by an orchestrating software which starts them in the first place. Ah. You see, so this is a higher level of control. So, I see. Uh, and so the point is that, so from a maybe from some application point of view, the database might be more important. But if you if you really look at like all the way the entire software stack all the way to the human operators, it's called a stack for a reason. The stack is the hierarchy of control, basically. Mm-hmm. It's more about the central planning exactly, from that yeah. perspective. Right. And no, you're exactly right. The simple point here is that central planning always creates a hierarchy of control because that's just the nature of it. Mm-hmm. So that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Right. The earliest peer-to-peer systems that reached widespread application that I know of were things like Napster, Kazaa, LimeWire, these distributed file sharing systems. And I'd like to talk through these as an example of an early application of your distributed hash table technology, Kademlia. And I want to start with the technologies that came before Kademlia, which is that you had peer-to-peer systems that were built with a centralized database like Napster. And then you had peer-to-peer systems that were built with a technique called flooding. Explain the peer-to-peer technologies, the peer-to-peer stacks that were used for this role of the distributed file sharing network that came before Kademlia. What were the pros and cons of those systems? Right. So the first one was Napster, and this was simply the model where you put the whole database of songs 
and the locations of their files, you put it in one computer and all the clients, all the users would access this one computer as a database. And the drawback of this at the time actually was more legal than computational. I mean, nowadays, someone might say this doesn't scale, but actually back at the time, uh, the, the real problem was that a subpoena was sent to the address of the Napster company. And a subpoena essentially uh, suffices to, to stop the software, you know, the service until further resolution. So actually at the time I was thinking that the subpoena process, so the creation of peer-to-peer systems, at least the reason I created Kademlia initially was both to create scale, but also to essentially make the subpoena process uh, language inapplicable. Because if you had a service that or applicable in a very difficult way. So if you had a service that was sprawled across a thousand homes, it would be much, especially across different uh, legal boundaries, it would be very difficult to subpoena all of those. So at the, at the time, really, it was more about resilience towards kind of legal boundaries to, to make it more, to make systems like this available in multiple regions, basically. Yeah. So the next technique was this flooding, which I think is the multicast kind of methodology. Can you explain what flooding is? Yeah, so I should back up to say that the main computer, sort of the, the main sort of computational, you know, benefit of talking about these peer-to-peer systems flooding or DHTs yeah. is after all indeed that like you get to have much more space as you're using more computational devices. You have replication, so some pieces might be available in multiple geographic regions, but the, but the big point is that you, you get all this new space. And the problem, so you can describe many more songs and sort of save them in this communal memory, which is much bigger than just one, one computer's memory. Now, the issue that comes with storing information, though, is, is how do you retrieve when you're looking for something specific? And this is when the distinction comes between flooding or other methods. So all, I would say that, first of all, all peer-to-peer technologies generally disperse the information of the database that they are memorizing. They disperse it evenly across its nodes. And the differences have to do with how do they kind of market, tag it, so that they can find pieces efficiently on a query. So the typical, because they're simply key value stores, in other words, they just save some data under a given string, usually the, the, the query simply find the data associated with a given string. And so how the finding is done differentiates flooding from other algorithms. Flooding is the simplest algorithm. It's the first one that appeared in a peer-to-peer system. And flooding simply meant that every node in the peer-to-peer system would ask every other node that they're connected to. And this would continue until it floods the whole networks and collects all possible answers, basically. Mm -hmm. So the commonality between Napster and, which was the centralized database, and flooding, which is the, I guess, there's no centralized database, but you have to ask everybody. So it's, you know, every query is, you know, you have to query N, all N nodes in the system, potentially, or something on the order of N. 
but in each of these systems, we've got the same basic setup, which is I didn't really discuss. But in all the all, you have a bunch of MP3 files, for example, and MP3 files are kind of big, so you can break them up into chunks and allocate them across the network. And you know, if I've got a little bit of extra storage on my computer, maybe I store a chunk of an MP3. You know, if you've got a, a slightly bigger uh, you know, set of space, maybe you can store a larger chunk or a, a, a multiple sets of chunks. And the real difficulty is how do you have efficient lookups of those chunks? How do you retrieve those chunks efficiently and have those chunks addressed in hopefully a distributed way so that the network is resilient to any particular node going offline and the queries are faster? But underlying it, the storage system is kind of the same for the different uh, peer-to-peer network technologies that we're talking about. Is that right? Do I have a, a correct understanding? Yeah, so the setup is the following. Usually the actual songs are present only on computers that... Uh, people actually care to have them. And so, I mean, I'm not, I'm ignoring optimizations just to like see the, the clean model. Sure. Songs are where they're being used by somebody. So on a, some subset of users for any given song. Now, if, if a new user wants to, uh, to, to find a new song and download it, they make a query that contains the name of the song. And what they're trying to get in return is the list of people who currently have the song. So really, they're looking up in this meta table where under the song name, you want to have a list of every person that currently, you know, has the song on their computer. Now, what you described about chunks, this is an additional layer of optimization, which kind of goes beyond. So this is completely separate. It just is the notion that the files themselves might be separated into smaller pieces. Right. And instead of looking up you know, different algorithms might also catch them on additional notes that are not necessarily listening to the songs. So, the, and then the only modification happens is that in your algorithm is that when you look up a song, you're not asking for the people, for the files, for the people who have the files and are listening to them. You're asking a slightly more technical question, you know, where are all the people that for any reason might have a, even a piece of the file. Yeah. But this is an optimization you know, having to do with like efficient kind of storage. Storage, yeah. Okay, we've outlined the problem that we're trying to solve. Whether we are trying to address specific MP3 files or we're trying to address chunks of files across a distributed storage network, we're just trying to address something. We're trying to build a system where if I want to find a specific MP3 that is stored somewhere in the system. I'm first of all I'm going to have to know if that file is on the system. I'm going to need to, you know, to, to kind of understand if there's a, the presence of the file. But if I know that the file is present, if if I have some way of searching for it, I also need to know who to ask for that file because if we've got a a peer-to-peer network of of millions of nodes, the whole idea of peer-to-peer is that I don't have to be connected to all of those nodes. I can ask a node in the network to find the adjacent nodes and ask their adjacent nodes and then you know those nodes to ask other nodes and there should be some way that I can locate where in the network the file that I'm looking for is located and this is the challenge that you are solving with the Kademlia algorithm the Kademlia algorithm for a distributed hash table and if I understand it correctly 
The role of the distributed hash table in a peer-to-peer network is to be a routing table. It's supposed to help you understand where to find information in the network. It's not like you're storing the information itself in the distributed hash table. It's actually the other way around. So okay. the core algorithm is a routing algorithm, which we can describe. And this algorithm is in service to just providing a data abstraction to the programmer, which is exactly the same as a hash table. But they call it a distributed hash table just to, to indicate that it's implemented in some peer-to-peer way. But really what's happening is that we have a routing algorithm, which is the implementation of what's otherwise known as a hash table. Because hash table is a data service. It has two functions, put a value under a key and query is there a value under a given key? So that's just like the semantic meaning of a hash table. It's, it's a question-answer thing. But you can view it as a, as a data model, basically. It's a table that has two columns. The first column is the key, which is a string, and the second column is the value. So the routing algorithm is an implementation of a database, of this hash table database in a peer-to-peer system. So Maybe I can try to tell you how it works to see. Sure, but just to be clear, so am I completely mistaken that the routing table is core data structure for the the Kademlia network? The routing table is a core data structure for the Kademlia algorithm, which is a routing algorithm. Right. This routing algorithm is is that can be used directly as a it can be reused basically as a hash table. But, but this is a second layer. This is the application layer, basically, of the Kademlia story. So from the point of view of a user, you really... Uh, so a user is somebody who's sitting on one computer. From their point of view, if they're, if they're using the Kademlia library, they just say join network, and then they have the two functions that they can apply against the network. Store a key value or query for a key. So yeah. what they see as a programmer is, is just service interface with basically a database, simple database interface with a store and a retrieve function. So that's what the user sees. But what's happening inside the... the so the question is, how is this database implemented? And this is where the Kademlia routing algorithm comes into play. Because the idea is that the Kademlia... So let me try to explain it briefly. The, the Kademlia algorithm tries to basically imagine a hypothetical, uh, spa- uh, hypothetical space like a high-dimensional di- high hypercube, for instance. Uh, but it's some high-dimensional space that is, or you can think of it like a sphere, a high-dimensional sphere. And then it, it basically, every node that joins the network gets a random address. So it's like uh, on the sphere. So it's like, uh, this is a mental model. So they just get a, a, an address where they live in this imaginary sphere. And so we associate uh, keys with a, any string key that the user might try to put in their database. We associate the string key uniquely also with the location on this hypothetical sphere. And we simply postulate that whoever, which, whichever node is closest in, on the sphere to the key is the node that I should try to find and ask about the key. So this would be the node responsible for these keys. 
and the, the reason the reason why we we need the hypothetical sphere is because every node just like it works on in social networks on the globe every person knows uh, people that are near them geographically or near them contextually like for instance uh, job wise or language wise but one way or another they have these local links but if they want to uh, send a letter so this is the famous social experiment uh, if they want if you want to send a letter to somebody far away it's enough to uh, say the name of the person the country uh, something general about them and just pass it on to one of your contacts that is roughly going closer and have them just keep passing through local contacts until they get to the destination and so we create the exact same situation but in an imaginary sphere and everybody's contacts are the uh, are the nodes that are close to them on the sphere we're just creating an imaginary world so they know how to route through it okay so i want to make this less abstract for people sure. so let's say i log into a peer-to-peer -peer file system that is using a Kademlia distributed hash table. When I join the network, I get assigned a node ID. I find other nodes somehow. Describe what happens when I onboard to a Kademlia network. So to onboard, you have to have a connection to, from outside to, a, to somebody who's already in the network. So you onboard through another node. And during the onboarding process, so the purpose of the onboarding process is so that you become a member of the network. So to become a member of the network, you need to accomplish two things. First, you need to pick an address for yourself, which is usually some random number. And so this places you kind of, this gives you an address in this, in this space of participants. And then after you have the address, you need to establish contacts to a small number of other participants and these are contacts that you're going to be maintaining over time so these are going to be your neighbors so to speak so they're going to do favors for you in terms of routing and, and you will reciprocate but now who your neighbors are this is essentially the content of your routing tables who your neighbors are initially you get help from the node that introduces you to fill your routing tables so they when you're being introduced you pick your address, your address essentially determines who are the people that are near you currently in the network. So the person, the contact that is introducing into the network will actually query the network for you, find the IP addresses and generally information about the nodes that are closest to you, to your address deliver it back to you so you can populate your routing tables with information about your neighbors and from then on you're independent because you are now alive in the network and you have physical which usually means you know tcp contacts to your neighbors in this address space and you can just keep maintaining this over time basically once i've joined the network i can find other nodes I also need to be able to find files or I need to be able to locate or I need to be able to help service a query. If I am just a node in the peer-to-peer -peer network, I now have my routing table that tells me how to find certain nodes in the network. How do I locate another file or what role do I play as a node in the peer-to-peer -peer network in finding files? 
uh, every node essentially uh, services requests for finding files. Uh, and these requests come from your neighbors, or actually they can come from anyone. So the way it works is that somebody says, I'm looking for a file with a given key. And all you do is that you look at all of your neighbors and you see which neighbor is closest to the key of the file and you forward the question to them. So that's the algorithm. That's all everybody does is they, they simply forward the question to whoever neighbor is closest. And finally, the person who, the, the node that actually produces the answer is whichever node ends up, whichever node actually sees that they have the file itself on their storage. So every node either, every node essentially first checks whether they have the file in their database of, of the, in their file system, wherever they store it. And if they don't have it, they forward the question to a neighbor that is closer. And if they don't have a neighbor that is closer to the file address and they themselves don't have it, it means that the file just doesn't exist in the system. Yes. And that would be the get operation. If, we, if we're if we thinking of Kademli in terms of the distributed hash table, somebody issues a get operation for a movie or for a song or whatever file they're looking for. They issue the get operation to any node in the network, and then the get operation effectively propagates through the network. Yes, but the important point is that it propagates efficiently, so it doesn't end up flooding, because uh, the, if you remember the rule is, if somebody doesn't find the file or the value or the key onto their own node, then they forward the question, but they don't forward it to all of their neighbors, which would be flooding. They forward it to the neighbor that is closer to the key, so they only forward it to one neighbor. So the query goes in a in a path towards the destin towards the the node that would have it, as opposed to flooding every time. Yes. Okay. So the get operation for a hash table is is typically has the parameter of a key. So the key might be the name of the movie. Let's say it's Titanic, titanic.mov or titanic.mp4 or whatever it is. Yeah. So the results of the get operation will be the actual file. So if we say if the parameter is a string with the name of the file and the result is going to be the file, we have this this key and this value and the... So let me just correct you. The result is not the file. What, okay. So first, when you... When you have a, mo a query like Titanic, the, uh, or, a, or, or this might be a file name, whatever it is, it's some textual key. This key first gets converted through a, just a, a hash function into a number. And this number is, exact, is a number in the same space as the keys of the Kademlian nodes. So this is be because you want to have a connection between the address of a node and these keys, and so they both have to be numbers. So you, re so you reduce the textual query to a number. This number is treated as an address, just like the addresses of the Kademlian nodes themselves. And then you simply postulate that you're looking for the nodes whose addresses are, are closest to the address of your query. Mm -hmm. The key space gets broken up among 
the nodes based off of the different numerical ranges. So Titanic is going to hash to some specific number, and that number will be in some key space. And then the key space, again, is, is broken up across the network. How is that defined? How do you balance the key space among the different nodes in the network? So the key space in general is something huge, like let's say it's 160 bits. This is an enormous huge key space. And then the question is, how do you know which keys go to which nodes in the network? So the answer to this question varies dynamically. So the, the answer simply is, whichever nodes are currently alive and are closest in terms of their key, so the address of a node is, is their key, so whichever nodes are currently alive and are closest to the key for a query, or they are the ones responsible for this query. So uh, we can just say numerically uh, closest. It happens to be a geometric notion of closeness that's a little bit more elaborate than numerical difference. But for the sake of this uh, discussion, it's enough to say that the nodes whose own addresses are numerically closest to the keys, they are responsible for that particular key. So uh, does this make sense? Yes, it does make sense. The missing piece mm -hmm. that I don't understand yet is if I make a query to the network, there's some deterministic routing that allows me to to find the file Titanic mm -hmm. based off of how that Titanic query consistently hashes to a node that's going to lead me to to wherever the Titanic file is close to. I'm having trouble connecting how the file, the location of the file gets, you know, when I join the network, my routing table is established, and then I upload Titanic, right? So so it's I'm having trouble connecting the fact that if I have Titanic, if I've uploaded Titanic after my routing table has been established, how is there a connection between the key space, like when somebody enters in a query? I think I know what your confusion is. So okay. because what you call to upload Titanic yeah. is actually a two-step process. Okay, the put operation. Yes, I think you're conflating basically so the, the, the actual file versus the indexing. So because when you're uploading, okay, so let's start from, from what happens. When you upload Titanic, when you hit upload on your application, under the hood, two things happen. The file is already on your computer, so maybe it just gets declared as it's being shared. But the more important thing that happens is that you actually, your computer using Kademlia finds the other node, the node closest to the, to the notion Titanic. So it, it creates, it computes the key for the word Titanic. This is the file that is being uploaded on your computer, but you have to tell the network that you have it. So you actually have to store a key under the Titanic key. You have to store the information that you, you are being identified however you want, IP address or otherwise, mm -hmm. that, you have, that you have the file. So mm -hmm. the, the, the information of storing this meta pointer towards you, yes. th this is what the Kademli algorithm does. And, and this information is not going to be stored on your computer. Your computer says, uh, initiates the storage operation, but this operation is going to trickle through the network until it reaches the nodes in the network, which happens to, to be responsible for the key space uh, yes. around Titanic. So yes. that, that's how you inject the information. I understand. 
Yes. So to try to rephrase what you just said, so if I'm going to upload Titanic, I am going to perform the same hashing operation to figure out what is the number that maps to Titanic, and then I'm going to find the nodes in the key space who are responsible for the tight where wherever the file Titanic falls in that key space, and I'm going to tell them, hey, I've got Titanic. And if somebody in the network wants Titanic, you tell them to go contact me. Yes. You basically leave an envelope which says Titanic, you know, on the outside. And on the inside, it says how to find you. So anybody who's looking for Titanic, they're going to also end up discovering that same node that's responsible. And they're going to look at your envelope and just uh, see where to go next. Does Kadimlia account for the fact that when people are looking for a file, they don't often know exactly what the file name will be? In other words, like they need to search, they need to do some kind of fuzzy matching. Does Kademli itself account for that? Kademli itself doesn't. So Kademli is an exact... Uh is an exact search due to the hashing function that's uh, applied to the to the query. So people use combinations and sort of compositions of multiple instances of Kademli or just just different namespaces of different key spaces to to create indexing effects. But in general, there's a limit to this, which is purely information theoretic. So. This is actually the reason why the first uh, file sharing systems were not uh, a very high quality products. There was a lot of noise because you could only find things using exact matches. And later with the advent of Google, it became clear that in order to rank, to get meaningfully ranked uh, searches, you, you need sort of structural semantic information. And this is kind of beyond Kademlia, so. Right, that makes sense. If somebody logs onto the network, they're looking for Titanic, they search the correct, or they don't search, but they enter the correct name, they enter Titanic in the specific way that it's indexed in the Kademlia network, and they are routed to me. They they ask the network, and the network finds a path to me and says, hey, this guy has Titanic, go ask him for the file. Then the person asks me for the file. I've got a uh, a movie file that I'm going to give them. How do they know that I'm not going to give them a virus instead of giving them the actual Titanic movie? Well, they don't know because this is this is just implied in the interaction. So they're looking for something that's advertised as something. I mean, there's no. So the short answer is they don't know, and there was a lot of sort of bad content and viruses that were being spread using precisely what you're describing. So, so, so the, way, the way things work now, that, uh, so nowadays the mitigation of false content happens from the way in which you discover the files because nowadays people first look for on the, on the web for a rankings of, let's say, BitTorrent uh, uh, files, which are ranked according to their BitTorrent, uh, they're described through their BitTorrent addresses. So first you benefit from Google's ranking on those. So you, you actually are getting a, a highly vetted uh, BitTorrent uh, link. And then you go to BitTorrent and you're not, uh, you're not looking for 
Titanic anymore, you're looking for a specific BitTorrent source of Titanic. So you see, you find the quality, so you, you create the, the, the step where you want to find a, sieve out a quality link happens on Google, and then you go to a file sharing system already knowing which file you want, you know, represented for instance with a BitTorrent address, and then and then the Kademlia network is just used to find this specific file. So the file, usually the BitTorrent files are also signed. So when you discover the file on Google, you also discover the signature of the file's content. So when you eventually, when you download it from BitTorrent, you know, you can verify that you're getting the content that was advertised on Google. So th that's why it works today. So peer-to-peer -to -peer systems never actually fixed the, the problem of finding quality uh, right. information. They just became systems for looking up specific file replicas identified essentially by their content digest. So like a short, right. yeah. And you actually use Google to rank through these, uh, just through the meta information. And I think this gets at what you've said earlier that Kademlia has a scope. Kademlia itself is not a peer-to-peer -peer network. It solves a problem within a peer-to-peer file sharing network. It solves the problem of a distributed hash table. Yes. And so things like building a search index or ensuring that the file that gets delivered is secure and is not a virus, those are not exactly in the scope of Kademlia. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. So when Kademlia came out, this was 2002, and it was revolutionary in how fast it could route people to the right location. What was the public reception to it in 2002? What were the early applications of it? I think the, one of the earliest ones was uh, my friend Jet McCaleb's eDonkey file sharing system and then Overnet. And I, I believe from there it, it uh, started spreading to most of the other clients. Right. Now, people uh, today often associate Kademlia and other peer-to-peer -peer systems with Bitcoin because it's kind of the trendiest application of peer-to-peer of -peer networking, but Bitcoin itself does not use Kademlia. Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer -peer system, but it uses flooding. Why does Bitcoin use flooding and not Kademlia? So Bitcoin is solving a different problem. So the, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin is peer-to-peer -peer at the level of the exchanges. So all exchanges talk to each other as peers, meaning that they have to you know, replicate it, or rather just the replicas of the, uh, the replicas of, a, of the chains, in a, even in a single exchange or across exchanges. But there is fewer nodes. So these are usually like, you know, company or corporate nodes that like have a lot of resources to store the whole blockchain. They're, so they're, there's a small number of them and they all have to have the entire database, uh, uh, the same copy of the entire chain. Whereas in Kademlia, uh, everybody has a piece of the database and nobody has the whole so that you can benefit from as much storage as possible. In the blockchain setting, you're not trying to benefit from storage because everybody, at least all the exchanges, want to have the entire uh, blockchain there. Really, And so then the algorithm is completely different because there's no need for looking up anything whenever you want to make changes you have to tell all of the other participants or if you have to re reach a consensus of some sort you have to essentially talk to all of the other participants because that's the definition of consensus 
So it's a different application, but it is peer-to-peer in the sense that they're all equal and they behave according to the same rules against each other. Nobody is more important than the other. IPFS does use Kademlia. IPFS is a system that has a cryptocurrency associated with it, but IPFS itself is not a currency. Why does IPFS use Kademlia? I mean, I believe that um, they use it for the same, uh, without going in, 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 in great detail, because I'm not familiar in detail, but they generally use it as in, Similarly to the file sharing case that we discussed, but essentially, yeah. essentially they can. So they have lots of files that are stored on different uh, people's machines, and then they have meta information which says where the files can be found. Well, this meta information is essentially key values. That the key is the file block, and the value might be where it's stored. So they use the Kremlin algorithm precisely to index those. Uh, most likely. And they probably they have probably more sophisticated users on top of this, but this is uh, likely a, a good example. At some point in your career, your focus shifted from distributed hash tables, which are commonly used for these decentralized distributed systems, and you started focusing more on centralized infrastructure. You worked at DARPA, you worked at Google for a while, Tell me about that shift in focus, going from the world of decentralized distributed systems to the centralized distributed system world. Mm -hmm. Well, so my longer term vision for, so I think both peer-to-peer systems and distributed systems essentially embedded in nature. So distributed systems just correspond to kind of coherent uh, organisms, so animals, whereas uh, social interactions between them with using social protocols correspond to essentially peer-to-peer systems. So in the software world, you want to uh, have both uh, if you want to. uh, So peer-to-peer systems with Kademlia, it became clear that they're possible uh, because you were always a little timid to even believe that it will work at scale that the math will work, but it, but it worked out. But then the longer-term vision is now peer-to-peer systems have to connect very intelligent nodes that are not just routing and making a hash table storage. And so, so let me give you like a, an example of what this vision looks like. So every person could potentially have their own uh, cloud application running in some commercial cloud of their choice, Amazon, Azure, or some in some other country. And this uh, cloud application can be essentially their uh, digital represent their representation in the digital world in the following sense. It can first of all do services for them, like for instance, backup everything that's going through their personal devices, as well as it can represent them through protocols in interactions with other people's personal cloud assistants, essentially. So these interactions can be much more com- so much more complex than just uh, doing either just file searches or uh, crypto transactions, but in general you can you can have a, a, a simply a, a standard where people can have okay so this representation in the cloud, but but now because it's pretty clear that uh, even for your own personal kind of nodes 
representation for your presence in a peer-to-peer -peer system nowadays just running a single computer doesn't capture everything that you might want to do people uh, are sophisticated users of the internet now and people manage databases and uh, they provide services to other people so an individual has to be able to modularly build sophisticated applications that represent them in a peer-to-peer -peer society on the internet. So how do people create sophisticated, fully kind of self-sustained, requiring no personnel software? That's the question of essentially building distributed systems. So, but the reason I got interested in this is because companies build distributed systems and sustain them because they're able to benefit from the uh, people, uh, engineers like uh, operations engineers who continuously fix problems that are not fixable automatically. So in some sense, corporate software is always leaking and there's uh, lots of people on staff to, to make it work. You cannot afford this if you want to build a personal uh, cloud application because uh, by definition, every individual is just one person. So they need to be able to reliably create modular applications in the cloud that represent their interests without needing the sophistication of a whole company. And I believe this is possible. I believe that the, through proper uh, engineering methodologies and techniques, in particular languages and other such techniques, it is possible to make uh, programming of large distributed systems simple and safe the way uh, programming for a single application used to be for a single computer. Why the focus on the languages? The idea of looking to a language to simplify the interaction with distributed systems? Well, a language is simply a development tool that uh, allows you to uh, sort of com compose lots of pieces together and kind of gives you some uh, facilities to make sure that they fit well so that you're managing your, your things. It basically kind of lets you know when you've made a mistake in your own kind of designs. So languages, so uh, ultimately uh, the language is the, is the point where the author, so in my example maybe a person who tries to build a, big, a cloud application, the author expresses themselves themselves to the machine. So the language is what faces the human. So f first of all, by virtue of this, it has to be, you know, useful and, and natural. Now, there's another detail, which is that people like, uh, people like to think in one language. And generally, when people switch between languages, whether it's natural or programming, inefficiencies arise because the languages pre present different mental models. So I think a lot of people hold the opinion that in a hypothetical world, ideally, everything that you need to express to make a program run should happen in one language because this is the most effective way both for the programmer to express it, but also if, some, if a software is expressed in multiple uh, languages, there is no tool that makes sure that the things, that the parts that are in different languages uh, talk coherently to each other. Because such a tool would essentially, so people use sort of uh, ad hoc solutions, like they define protocol languages for, the, for, for connecting technologies and so forth. But this complicates the process. If everything is in one, in one language, one is able to kind of have an end-to-end check of, of a large system directly at compilation time, as opposed to writing integration tests. And I mean, 
the simple answer is that languages, different languages mix mental models. And ultimately it has become, I hold the opinion that actually there is only one mental model that describes all programming workflows. And so this is simply essentially directed acyclic graphs, uh, which is from the compiler point of view, this is known as the SSA representation of functions, which means it stands for a single static assignment. But the bigger point is that it's a dependency graph, a, a data flow of calculations. So this is the basic way in which we describe com co a computation under the hood of any programming language or under the hood of how higher level cluster pipelines are, uh, are created. So there is a, a uniform way, semantic, behind how we build things and it's not reflected in a technology because technology grew over time and that's why it kind of is, is, is very disparate. All right. Well, interesting answer. I want to close off with just a, a broader question. So the two biggest distributed systems communities today, I think broadly speaking, you could say are Kubernetes and then the cryptocurrency ecosystem. You have these uh, two disparate communities and the Kubernetes community is is vibrant with corporations that are looking to revamp their infrastructure, they're looking to revamp their operations, and there's a whole lot of money going into Kubernetes for those reasons. And then you have the cryptocurrency ecosystem where they're trying to reframe the entire way that humans do transactions throughout the world, uh, as well as you know the, the immutability and the append-only and censorship resistance and so on. Is there any overlap that you see between these two communities um, that has been interesting to you? Because, I mean, maybe maybe they're, they're totally disjoint and it wouldn't make any sense for there to be overlap, but I, I just see it as, as strange that, like, I went to KubeCon, I think, I think you were there, or, may, or maybe you didn't go, but in any case, it was strange. Like, you, you have this distributed systems conference and nobody was really talking about cryptocurrencies, which, I, I mean, maybe distributed systems is so big that, you know, we, we, we need to have sub-conferences uh, within that. But I don't know. I just found it interesting. I don't know if, if you find that thread interesting to pull on. I mean, I think that's a, actually a very interesting observation. I haven't thought of it. I'm sure that my partner, Joseph Jacks, my partner in business, is, is, would have an interesting answer to this. My interpretation is that perhaps the cryptocurrency community is not, I'm not, I don't know this for a fact, but perhaps it's not contributing essentially tools for, back into the, into the Kubernetes ecosystem. I don't know if this is the case, but the reason I say this is because the, the tendency is that people who are trying to uh, promote new tools for working with Kubernetes tend to be at these conferences. And I will say that the crypto community in general is interacting at least in, in meetings and discussions with, with um, companies that are focused on building Kubernetes products. But from the projects that um, we have been looking at in terms of tools and the ecosystem, none of them have come from cryptocurrency companies. But cryptocurrency companies are new, so it, I, I suppose they haven't had enough time yeah. to create a, a quality product because, I mean, any tool for Kubernetes probably requires at least a couple of years to come to, to a point of maturity where you would uh, be able to show it at a conference. So maybe this is part of the reason why. Yeah. 
Oh, we'll see. Well, Petar, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. I am excited about whatever you and Joseph are building. I know it's kind of a stealth project right now, but uh, whatever it becomes, I'm sure it'll be exciting. Thank you so much. Wow.